was enjoying our time of worship in the back, and then I uh, heard that there was some great worship going on down in the chapel and ran down there. And what a cool sight. All of these kids just rocking it out, and they're singing a song with the lyrics that go something like, na, 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 yeah, na, 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 na. So they were having a blast down there. The high school uh, uh, band is actually leading our, our children in worship. What a cool deal that is, I actually think, to see our um, young people uh, mentoring and discipling uh, other, other young people as well, too. So it's just neat to see all the things that are going on around here. I'm a little bit out of breath, which says probably more about me than about the distance between here and there. But would you pray with me as we begin our time together? Lord, we do thank you for the richness of your word and that it is so relevant. God, you have, you have something to say to our children. You have something to say to our youth. You have something to say uh, in our old age. And you have something to say we're in the midst of uh, the energy and the frantic activity of life. God, I pray that you would say those things to us that matter for us as we approach your word this morning. In Jesus' name we ask, uh, we, we do ask for that, Lord. Amen. We were on a trip to Disney World with our daughters. It was like a cool deal for us. We had never imagined being able to do it, but we had three days and two nights. And so our strategy was to find a place to stay just in the north part of Florida on the way down from Milwaukee and then get to Disney World as quickly as we could to enjoy day one. And I was having a hard time finding the girls. They had headed down to the, uh, the car, and Beth and I were packing the rest of the uh, stuff away. And I got down to the lobby, and I couldn't find the girls anywhere. And I went out, and it was in North Florida, and there was a hotel, and right next to it there was a, a field and uh, you know, a fence around it. And I went around the corner, and there all the girls were, and they were just enamored with a scruffy old pony just kind of sitting there munching grass. And I said, girls, come on, we're going to go to Disney World. And I couldn't peel them away from that scruffy old pony munching on grass. And I finally looked at this scruffy pony, and I looked at my kids, and I said, girls, we're going to Disney World. And, and they, they just thought there could be nothing better in the world than where they were just then. And I realized, you have no clue what your day is going to look like. You know, it seems like we can oftentimes be like that. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his, in his volume, The Weight of Glory, says that this is what happens to us as Christians. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis had his finger on something that is true of what God wants for us and I wonder sometimes if it's not that we're far too easily pleased, we're just far too easily just distracted or, or clueless, perhaps, in regards to what it is that God wants for us. And in this story of Joseph, as it unfolds, we will see again and again this invitation that God gives us into a life that is filled with richness 
in so many ways, in adventure, in challenge, in, in surprise, in, in uh, 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 just take your breath away moments that happen from time to time in the midst of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to follow the Lord. So I want to examine this story again this morning, and I want to just talk about it because it, we, we heard this in Sunday school, right? And you heard this when you were four years old, and uh, I think when we go back to it, uh, the surprise for me is there's so much more than I had even imagined. So I want to look at some of that this morning, see some of the detail that we perhaps ran roughshod over. And then look at the threads that wind their way through this story. We, we picked them up in Genesis 34, and, and they will wind their way all the way through till Genesis 49 and 50. And then consider what the implications are for us, because that's our purpose this morning, isn't it? It's for us to walk in here living the life we do, to be, to be invited into the text, to learn something from it that would then impact the life we live as we go out the door. So let's look at the story, the couple of threads, and then consider the implications, because I want you... I want you to walk out of here with something in the same way that as a result of my study, I've walked out of this text with something too. I want the same thing for you uh, that I'm grateful that God has given to me. So I want us to remember, first of all, where we've been on it. The first week we talked about God, the sovereign, mighty God who is always at work. He is never surprised. He is never staring defeat in the face. It doesn't matter because he is on the throne and he is working in circumstances one would think would just going to be a train wreck. There he is moving forward. It means that I can live with confidence. I know who he is. I know he has a plan. I might not know it, but I know he's in charge and he will work his will. I can live with confidence that fuels courage along the way. And last Sunday we talked about the things that we most fear, that we might actually lose status or stuff or position or power, and that that loss of those things is actually what he intends to do. He intends to drain our lives of all of those things that we clutch to and hang on to that slow us down and give us what we most need. And there's an invitation that we talked about last week the same words that Jesus uttered before he went to the cross, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And that's the path towards courage, for us to be able to surrender. It is the most critical thing we need to do in order not to fall on our face, to be able to utter and mean with our head and our heart, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And this morning we get to what that actually looks like in the course of life, because we can say it and we can mean it, but what does it imply for us? What is the result that comes as a result of it? You'll see the title this morning is Clumsy Courage. In the dictionary, the word clumsy means a variety of things, but essentially this, it is awkwardness in movement or action without skill or grace, perhaps even ill-conceived. Can you imagine that kind of courage? Courage that's clumsy. That's what we'll see in this story. We begin with Jacob, or Israel. He's got a distinguished name, but he's a lousy father. You see, he never really learned from his past. Clumsy is perhaps a word that is too gracious for him, but it wasn't like he was morally bad here. He was just a dad who didn't know any better. You see, he played favorites, and it messed up his sons. Someone has said in commenting on this, on this narrative, it's remarkable how much the Joseph narrative hinges on so ordinary a failing as parents' favoritism. 
And that's what it hinges in, on here. And that's what we see here. J Jacob, uh, I, I would have guessed that he would have seen the disaster wrought by parental favoritism in his own life in Esau's. I mean, do you remember what that did? Do you remember how it messed up his relationship with his brother? Parents are getting in and they're playing favorites. Both of them are playing favorites. And it totally messes up years and years of their life. But he, he saw that, he experienced that, and he carries that into his own life as well too. In chapter 29 it says, he loved Rachel more than Leah. He was married to w two women, one was a favorite. Can you imagine what that must have been like in the home? One knows they're the favorite, the other knows they're not. I mean, I mean that would make, that would make a... Uh, uh, a, a uh, 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 narrative or theme for a, a, a television program for years. One, one mess after the other. I was reading a book this week and someone was talking about this story and they highlighted this section with this title, Joseph Alienates His Family. And I said, no he doesn't. Jacob does. This isn't Joseph so much alienating his family as a father who alienates one son from his brothers. It's not like he's being devious here. It's just that I don't know that he could help it. Clumsy as could be. He gives his son, Joseph, what it, I grew up in Sunday school hearing that it was a coat of many colors. Scholars have looked at the Hebrew around this and, and, and it's not clear that that's what it means, but it means something ornamental. And actually something provocative. Provocative because whether it was a robe with long sleeves or a ceremonial robe with ornaments attached to it, it's the same thing that's described in 2 Samuel 13 verse 18 used to distinguish royal apparel. What the dad had done was put on a robe on one son that basically says, you're no longer working class. Everybody else is. But you are not. Your, your management is what that robe meant. Can you imagine putting that on one of the youngest kids in the family and, and, and saying, here is the standout person. And this becomes a point of conflict in this whole story. In fact, in, chap in chapter 37, it's mentioned in 23, it's mentioned in verse 31, it's mentioned in verse 32, and it's mentioned again in verse 33. I mean, this is a, this is a, a, a key point of it. There's favoritism that courses its way through this story that makes it such an awkward place to live and an awkward household to be a part of. But it's not just Jacob, it's Joseph as well. Joseph is a pretty typical adolescent. You know, I... I've heard people say, boy, I wish I could be, I wish I could be a, king again, a kid again. And I say, not me. I remember those days. They were clumsy as all get out for me. I, do ne I, I never want to be in junior high again. <laughs> uh, I, I just don't. Because I know how hard it is. And for those of you that are, I'm sorry. <laughs> it is just tough and hard and difficult along the way so here we see Joseph and early on in this story which we read last week he tells on his brothers he, he was no better or wiser than any other teenager when they see unacceptable behavior I mean what do you do you see something messed up what are you supposed to do even in our schools today they're encouraging young people to tell on bullies I mean where is that going to lead I mean, I get it, and I understand it, and I've actually even encouraged it in my own kids, but what, a, what an awkward situation 
that puts someone in. So here you see Joseph with a dad who's got a right to know that his sons are misbehaving and the brothers who have an expectation of loyalty. And so he gives this report and it puts him in a more than awkward situation. And then there are the dreams that come along. One dream after another. We talked about this last week. You know, in 1936, Dale Carnegie published a book. It sold 15 million copies. And the title of it is How to Win Friends and Influence People. In fact, there's a chapter in it that's titled this, Be a Leader, How to Change People Without Giving Offense or Arousing Resentment. You know the only problem with that book? It was written three millennia too late for Joseph to be able to appreciate it. I mean, he, he's not taken the course, he's not read the book, and clearly it puts him in just the worst situation. Isolation and endangerment by the hostility of his brothers, which is not entirely of his making. And there's little that he can actually do to put matters right. And then the awkwardness continues. In chapter 37, verse 15, we see Joseph again. He is sent out to go 50 miles from home to find his brothers, who, who think a lot of him, by the way. And 50 miles from home, and you say, how, how is this supposed to work? I mean, no cell phones. I've actually got, I've, my daughter has given me the permission, and I, I have to say that, for Find My Friends app. Right now, Meredith, and we've agreed on this, I won't creep on her, but right now she is, she is 8,813 miles away from me. She's in Bangalore right now. 8,813 miles. And I'll show you right where she is if you want to. I mean, this is what Joseph needed. He, 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 he needed permission from his brothers for Find My Friend, and he needed one of these to be able to do it. But I mean, how, how, else, how else do you get it done in a situation like this? And, and so it says in the text... What's he doing? He's wandering around in the fields. And then we go on and we hear about the brothers in verse 18. Danger, danger. They're plotting to kill him. Well, these guys are like the Keystone cops. I mean, when you, when you watch, watch what happens here and how clumsy it is, some of them, it says, intended to kill Joseph. Another one, Reuben, was only acting like he wanted to kill Joseph. He actually intended to rescue him and would have if he had any clue what the other brothers were doing at the same time. He goes to the cistern and he can't find him. And so all of his plans are thwarted by him being clueless in regards to what was going on with the rest of them. And all Reuben was trying to do was win back his father's favor. I mean, he, he just had lost his status. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Now he's just trying to win back his father's favor and he falls flat on his face. Judah, on the other hand, convinces his brothers not to kill Joseph, but, but to change their course and, and sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And so they do, and they go home and they deceive their father, and then they play act grief until they can't take it any longer. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like? Go home, tell your dad that his son is dead, and then act like you're grieving like he is. So difficult is it apparently that it seems at the end that they wanted to set an end date on their dad's mourning to which he responds, uh, uh, don't tell me when to stop mourning for my son. I mean, this is just, this is just a crazy story. 
filled with all sorts of people doing what they think might work and, uh, and everything is clumsy at best. Note also there are a couple of things before we get to the threads hanging through it. The irony in verse 20, in chapter 37, verse 20, it says, the brothers say in verse 19, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. I mean, isn't it ironic that the very things that they eventually plan to do result in his dreams coming true? You know, they're trying to end them. They're actually the means by which those very dreams that they're so resentful of move forward. And then, and then what do they do when they want to uh, promote the charade that their brother has died? They take the blood of a goat and they use it to deceive their father. Do you remember a story like that? Actually, 10 chapters earlier in Genesis 27, what does Jacob do and his mom? Takes the goat to deceive his father. I mean, it's just deja vu. You see these themes, but there are other themes in here as well too. There's this covenant theme that threads its way through the story. This foreshadowing of an innocent servant of a father. And that's what Joseph was here. The innocent servant of a father being despised and rejected only to become the rescuer of the very ones that abused him. Isn't that interesting? That's what the story's about. The innocent servant of a father being despised and rejected only to become the rescuer of the very ones that abused him. Go to Isaiah 53 and you'll read that's what they said about Jesus the Messiah. And then you go to the New Testament in case you're not sure who this Messiah is as a follower of God, devoted to God. Well, you can just go back to the stories of the Old Testament and you can see one after another that in one way or another points exactly to Jesus Christ. The innocent servant of the Father, despised and rejected. And is the very one who through that rejection delivers those who rejected him. And he says to the whole world, come to me you who are weary and heavy laden. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I mean the story just, it just threads through the whole piece. I want to this morning note two human threads that are leading us through the story. And the first one we're going to just note, we'll pick it up next week and then we'll see it following its way through. One of them is Judah. Remember we, the first three sons just basically knocked themselves off in regards to their, their right uh, to uh, the inheritance and to the role of, of a leader. And uh, so the three have knocked themselves out of contention and we're at number four and it's Judah. And Jude actually does this puzzling thing and in chapter 37. We're not sure who, which side he's on, but he's the one actually who saves Joseph and makes sure that Joseph is, is, is alive and sends him to Egypt. We're going to hear more about Judah actually in the very next chapter. But there's this other thread here, and it's Joseph. And so we're asking the question, we talked about it last week, that surrender is the means by which God wants us to live our life. But what does surrender look like for a main character? And now we're beginning to bridge into what the implications are of this text for us. 
And if you've got a pen or a highlighter and your text in front of you, I'm going to ask you to highlight two words that just stand out in the text, or I hope do when we're done with this story. We're in verse 13, and we read this. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. And he replied, Very well. Underline that. Very well. Very well. Whatever you say, Dad. Here I am. On my way. Ready to go. What's next? Very well. Dad says, I'm going to send you. Son replies, very well. Surrender always involves action and movement. I mean, he's been a very well person his whole life long. He sees his brothers doing something wrong and he makes a bad report. He, he, he makes a report. He is engaged in action. They're, they're messing up very well. I'm going to make sure dad knows about this. Now we can debate the, the wisdom of that, but that's what he's always been. He's always been this person who walks into life and keeps walking forward through it. He gets one dream and he tells his brothers about it. The scorn of his brothers doesn't shut him up. He gets another dream and he tells his, fa- his, his father and his brothers about him. And then he was wearing this robe, this, this multicolored or long sleeve robe, and the favoritism of his father doesn't shut him down. And then his dad says to him, son, can you, do you honestly think that you're actually dreaming anything other than anchovies on your pizza last night? And, 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 and he says, son, you've got this all wrong. And it doesn't slow him down. His dad's telling him he doesn't have what it takes and he keeps moving forward. Then his dad says to him, okay, go see your brothers. Now, this is a disaster waiting to happen. And I'm not around to supervise. You're going to be 50 miles away from the reach of your father who's protecting you from the animosity of your brothers. Go ahead and do it. And what does he say? He says, very well. And then we get to verse 13, and he's not sitting anywhere. In fact, it's the witness that we see here who approaches him and says, And Israel said to Joseph, as you, uh, 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 he goes on, he, uh, uh, he says, very well. And then we read here in verse 15, a man found him. And where did he find him? Sitting on his duff waiting for someone to tell him what to do? No. I don't know if duff's a bad word or not, so I just use it. <laughs> My dad said it was okay, so I, I, I think I'm okay, but... I've done that before and I got in trouble. So a man found him wandering around in the fields because his dad told him to go and he said, very well. Moses, who writes, could have said this many other ways. But what does he say? There he is out in the fields wandering around because he said to his father, very well. And then there's one more remarkable twist. If he hadn't been wandering, if a man hadn't overheard his brothers earlier, and if that man hadn't asked Joseph what he was doing, Joseph would have been sleeping in his bed with his precious coat hanging in his closet not too many days from then. That's what would have happened. He would have just turned around and gone home. Can't find him on GPS. Don't know where he is anyway. What does God do? This isn't just a coincidence. 
God takes this guy who overheard the brothers talking about going to Dotham earlier, and then he takes this guy and he finds him wandering around, finds Joseph wandering around. And he says, Oh, I know this story. Can you imagine it? Joseph would have never ended up in slavery in Egypt if God hadn't somehow orchestrated these details. And instead of going home to his nice comfortable bread with his precious coat hanging in a corner, he finds himself in a jail cell with nobody in the world caring one whit who he is. But in the midst of this story, what do we see? We see a young man who said, very well, and our mighty God is always at work through people who choose to live out surrender in motion. Our mighty God is always at work through people who choose to live out their surrender in motion. Who say, time and time again, very well. Now, it wasn't very clear. It, it, it wasn't very clear. I'm going 50 miles and I'm going to wander around. It wasn't very smooth. It wasn't very good, the way we use the word, and it certainly wasn't very nice. But it was very well. Joseph Campbell said, we must get rid of the life we planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. We must get rid of the life we planned to have the life that is waiting for us. So we get to the implications. God who works through those who simply say very well and embrace the places it takes them. You've heard the phrase, it's impossible to steer a parked car. God intends for us to live our life in motion. The Christian life is like a bicycle. It doesn't work standing still. We've used the phrase around here, to do it and to do it scared. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us to say very well? Let me give you some help with that. It just might generate some ideas for you. But the implication of this for every single one of us is that we live out surrender to God in motion, moving forward and saying very well, even if we don't know what it's going to look like or where it will take us. What does it look like? I just heard this week about a... a, group of, uh, of three, three couples and, and, and they're, they're teaching uh, the children's ministry. I think it's second graders or third graders. I'm not sure. And I've heard them talk about the thrill that they're having in walking into a room. Some of them not a little, quite intimidated actually by what it would look like to do it on their own. And yet the three of them looked at each other and said very well, and they walked in, and they're having a blast teaching our third graders. Such a great story, is it, that we're beginning to construct children's ministry so that we can invite some of you who are ready to say very well into a cluster of two or three or four others where you can actually do, be on this adventure together because you know how intimidating fourth graders are, right? But what... What if you said very well, not because you were good at teaching, 
but because you're part of a church family where there are fourth graders that need somebody to come alongside of them in their life and know their name and love them up and work to others. What if that's the only reason why? And what if you just said, very well, Lori Keeney, her email's right on our website, you can talk to her afterwards, and she will plug you in. Or maybe you'll just gather a couple of other people together and say, should we say very well together? Heard about someone who was on a plane this week and they were having interaction with someone who had been in the United States for four years in grad school. Feel pretty much still lost and alone in the United States. And this person from the church asked this person, have you been into any uh, American homes yet? And she's been here four years and she says, I've never been in an American home. What would it mean to just say, very well, when you see somebody from that place? I remember a number of years ago, our daughter was in, it must have been first or second grade, and uh, we were doing the parent night thing, and there was this couple that had just, just moved into our community from Korea, and we were in a place a little bit like Prairie Village. I mean, it was just pretty much monocultural. And so there was this family from Korea, and this little girl, and our little girl, and, and Beth looked at them, and she said, have you, have you been over to someone's house for dinner yet? You know, there she was. She was saying, very well you know what they called their friend their relatives in California and told them that there were these crazy Americans who had invited them in home and they responded we've been in the United States three years and no one has ever invited us into their home and what does it mean just simply to engage in the art of eating and drinking together you know to actually see that person in front of you and hear hear an impulse that very well might be from the Lord that's followed by you saying to the Lord very well. What about that gift of food for that person that just moved in across the street? Or other forms of generosity? Uh, tutoring at Briarwood or helping out in the lunchroom? We've got a block party kit. What, what would it look like? That? Do you see what I'm trying to encourage you to consider? What is the next very well step that God has for you that is outside of your zone of comfort or security? Because God is always working when he takes us to that place where we're not sure whether we want to step over that edge or not. I had one of those just this past week. I've had a guy who's been asking me for a couple of years if I would, if I would teach a course downtown in the School of Urban Leadership. Some of you know Bruce McGregor and what's going on there. And this is a diverse group in this room. I mean, some of these guys live on the street and others are down there caring for them. And there's a room full of 18 of them on Tuesday night. And I'm walking in and I've never done anything quite like this in quite a place like that. I am way out of my element. But you know what? I felt like God said to me, I want you to get out of your comfort zone, Mark. And I want to do something where you're going to have to trust in me like you don't normally do. And God wants us to say very well. Did you know that in confirmation class, the curriculum for eighth graders this year is every month they've got an assignment. And you know what it is? Do something scared. Whatever the theme is for that month, they say, okay, you go out and you take a risk and you do something that, you, you're, you, that will be a, a bold risk for you. 
And for those of you that are parents, I just encourage you to jump in with them along the way. Because this is what we know. Our mighty God is always at work through people who choose to live out their surrender in motion, even when it's clumsy. Clumsy, awkward in movement or action, without skill or grace, perhaps even ill-conceived. It is the very well followed by the wandering around. It is the very well followed by I'll wander around that God uses to bring glory himself. What will bring to you this week a measure of apprehension by saying very well to it? What will it be? And I just have to say to you, I am absolutely convinced that for every single one of us in this room, he wants you to do that this week. To find something that will bring into your life a measure of apprehension to which your response will be very well and then you find yourself hanging on to Jesus as you move forward. Do you remember that video we showed Father's Day? We're not going to show it right now, but do you remember that on Father's Day? It's this really warm, endearing video of a dad saying to a son or daughter over and over again, you've got this. You've got this. And so there they go on the skateboard. And then there they go standing up and making a speech. And there they go just kind of jumping down from the, 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 the gym set. And dad's always saying, you've got this. You've got this. And it just, oh, we remember our dad. Remember when dad used to say that to me? He gave me the courage to do something I didn't dare to do. So here's my question. At what point in our lives did we decide that we didn't have to do that anymore? At what point in our life did we decide that it was okay to just simply say to somebody else, you've got this, and for us to actually sit along the sidelines and not be that person ourselves? When did that happen in your life? What does God want for you right now? My daughter sent me a quote about a year and a half or two years ago. And I want to read it to you. It was this. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we've dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we sailed too close to the shore. You know what my daughter was saying to me? Dad, keep doing it scared. Dad, you've got this. I think that's what God wants for you and me. Be able to put us in a place where it's going to look really clumsy. And we're going to act with courage because we've decided to be people of the very well would you pray with me dear my father thank you for the richness of your word and the stories that are there but more than the stories for the story of you that is found in this God thank you Lord that you are the one who encourage us to say very well to you and then care for us and challenge us and work in us as a result of it 
And God, I pray that there would not be a single person that would walk out of this room this morning without at least the beginning of an idea of what it is they will say yes to out of faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.